Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word that you have given to us. We thank you for the way in which it speaks to us. And we remember as we come to this book of Hebrews how you tell us that the word of God is is quick and it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It, It actually pierces, Lord God, to the very core of our being. And it is with this word that we come to today. And we thank you for the privilege that is ours. That when we think of so many thousands, maybe millions, who have never had the opportunity to ponder the things of the Word of God as we have, we have that privilege this morning. And when we think of the many who have a prejudice against it, they cause them to not even be able to hear your words, Lord, because of such hate for you and, and, and for Christianity. Lord, we thank you that we could come this morning. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see the things that are here, that we would behold our God. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I had graduated from seminary, and I was in my first pastorate, and it was a church that uh, was just a great fit for where I was in my life at that time. I loved the church. My, my family loved the church. And, and I had finally arrived in essence because ever since I was about 10 years old, I thought the Lord wanted me to become a pastor. And so here I was. I was an assistant pastor in, in a local PCA church. But after several years of being in the ministry, I was, I was sitting in my office and, and I don't remember specifically what I was doing, but I think I was working on a lesson, a sermon or something. And, uh, you know, I just uh, it got to a point in my ministry where I felt like I was just cranking out sermons and cranking out Bible study lessons and meeting with men and doing discipleship materials. I was in charge of a lot of different ministries and uh, had a lot of uh, logistics to take care of and teacher training and all these things. And I just felt like a religious mass production machine. And I remember one day sitting in my office and thinking, is this all there is? To ministry? Is this, matter of fact, is this all there is to Christianity? If so, I don't know that I want it. I don't know that I want to go on. Well, maybe you get to that point at times in your faith as well. Maybe you find it at times hard to pray. Maybe you feel that your religion and worship experiences have come up short and you're disappointed, maybe even desperate. Maybe you're looking somewhere else for the satisfaction that escapes you, that seems to elude you, that you thought that you should have. You feel this sense of lack of fulfillment in your life. Well, if you've ever felt that way or or maybe you even feel that way right now, I want you to know that the book of Hebrews is for you. It is, a, it is a great book. But what's striking about this letter is that the, when the author opens the book, he just sort of jumps right in. But he doesn't do so with demands or commands, but with a declaration, a declaration of the excellence of Christ. And, and in essence, what the author, the writer is doing is, is he's saying, Behold your God! I want you to see who Jesus is. Because what will compel our allegiance to Jesus, what will draw our hearts to him, what, who will, what will keep our love for Jesus in the midst 
of difficulties is not pressing commands of what we ought to do, but it's rather the unfolding gospel exposition or teaching of who he is and what he's done for us. That's what draws our love to Jesus. And so as we come this morning, I want us just to jump right in and to see who the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is. And the first thing I want you to notice is, as he said, that the Son is God's final word. He is God's final word. He says, long ago and in many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. As, as, as soon as we begin the book of Hebrews, we encounter one of the most incredible statements, I think, that we have ever heard if we really stop to think about it. But we've heard it so much that it maybe doesn't mean that much to us. But it is this. God spoke. God spoke. Now, we live in a pluralistic and a relativistic age, which means we live in a place where there's a lot of different beliefs. But there's no absolutes, be that in matters of truth or morality or whatever. And, and that has so begun to permeate our culture that it actually has started to seep into the church as well. And so even with Christians, sometimes we've been affected by this godless way of thinking. I mean, how many times have you been talking to someone about some topic that you know is clearly taught in God's word, and yet you've been very timid to say, this is true. You know, maybe as you've shared that truth, maybe you've presented it more, well, this is what I believe, or this is what I think, rather than thus saith the Lord. And I've even seen Christians reprimand one another, sometimes by saying, well, who are you to, to, to believe that what you believe is really the truth? How do you know that what other Christians don't believe is the truth, even if God's word might clearly state these things. Now, there sometimes can be a difference between what we think and what God's Word says. Maybe God's Word's not as clear. I, I understand that. But I'm talking about those matters that are clearly taught in God's Word. And so there's there could be this idea that's very confusing to us. So it's really important that we understand that God is a God who speaks, who reveals himself. And John MacArthur sort of describes this uh, importance in our human existence in this way. He says, you know, mankind lives in a natural box, he says, which encloses him within its walls of time and space. Okay, so here we are in our existence in this little natural box, but outside of this box is the supernatural. And, and somewhere deep inside of ourselves, we know that the supernatural exists, but, but in himself, Mankind does not know anything certain about it. And so someone comes along and says, you know, we must find out about this supernatural world out there. And so a new religion is born. And those who become interested run over to the edge of the box and get out their imaginative uh, mental chisels and they begin to chip away at the box to try to, to get a hole that they can climb through to the supernatural or at least to, to get a peek out into the supernatural and so figuratively, that is what happens. And so the Buddhist says that, you know, you have once you have worked and, and thought yourself into nirvana, all of a sudden you're out of the box. You're now into the supernatural world. You have transcended the natural and have found your way into the supernatural. 
The Muslims basically say the same thing. They just use different words. But really, so do all other religions, whether it be Hinduism or Confucianism or whatever it may be. These are all attempts by man to escape from the natural to the supernatural and get out of the box. But the problem is this, that mankind cannot get himself out of the box. The only way that mankind will know anything about the supernatural is one, if God comes into the box or God reveals himself. And so when we read in scripture that God spoke, this is big people. This is God bringing into our existence, into our world, things that we could not comprehend if he did not share these things with us. And so the writer of Hebrews says that God has spoken, but he says that he has spoken long ago. In other words, since the beginning of creation, he has spoken to mankind. And as a matter of fact, throughout the Old Testament, we see that many times and in many ways, God spoke. He delivered his word over the course of like 1,500 years uh, using something like 40 plus writers to bring about that revelation. But the Bible is not a collection of the inspired words of men, but the words of God spoken through these men by the Holy Spirit. In Second Peter chapter um, 1, verse 21, we read, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the things that we read in the Word of God are not just the words of men. And I, and, and I was really convicted of this as I was, as I was studying. You know, I don't know how many times I'll say, you know, as Paul said, or as James said, or, you know, as Moses told us, and, and, and oftentimes keeping it on that human level. There's nothing wrong with that because those men did speak. But actually, I think sometimes subconsciously that can erode the fact that the words that we hear are not the words of men, but they are the very words of God. So God's spoken often and in many different ways through the prophets. And so the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews would know this and appreciate the prophetic heritage of their forefathers since they were Jewish. But he and, and, and the writer here is not by any stretch of the imagination belittling the Old Testament prophets. He, he signifies that the revelation that has come through these prophets has been uh, a continuation of the revelation that he gives through the Son as well. But he is saying that the Old Testament prophets are no more, that he spoke, that is a past tense. Uh, but he says, you know, now God speaks in a different way. It says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, the Old Testament prophets were, were giants of the faith, in essence. I mean, I understand they were men like you and me, but, they, uh, they, but still, nonetheless, they were men who went through great difficulties and they were men who obeyed the Lord and, and did what, what he said. Not perfectly, but they did. But they pale in comparison to the Son of God. As Jesus put it in John chapter 3, verse 31, he said, He who comes from above is above all. He who is on the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. 
He who comes from heaven is above all. And so Jesus, as, as the Son of God, as the one who has come to earth, is not a mere messenger of God to speak his words like the prophet of the Old Testament did. But Jesus is God himself, as we'll see in just a moment. Well, you see, the, the New Testament actually gives us some insight into how the prophets thought about their prophecy. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, Peter talks about prophecy and he said, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. In other words, as they looked at the revelation, they didn't understand it all. They, they were speaking the words of God, but they didn't understand it in its entirety. They were wrestling to understand it, exactly what time and what person. They knew that it was talking about the Messiah, but they didn't have a clue. So their revelation was incomplete. But in Christ, the, his revelation is complete. He didn't merely share God's message, but he spoke as one who had authority in a way like none other before him had had. And so the author's point in Hebrews is to show the superiority of Christianity to the Old Covenant religion, that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament prophets. And we need to understand that Jesus is that final word of God. That there is no one through whom God is going to speak after his son because in his son, God has spoken. In other words, God has nothing more to say to this world than what he has revealed through Jesus Christ. He said it all in Jesus, in his person and in his work, in his words. There is never ever going to be another revelation from God than the revelation that he has given to us in his son. And we need to hear that. We need to know that. I mean, we say, yes, I know that. But do we? I mean, we live in a day and a time when we are being challenged almost constantly as Christians and as the church by new moral challenges that are coming down the pike, whether it be the sexual revolution, whether it be you know, what, different ways of immorality, different teachings that are happening. And brothers and sisters, the temptation so often in the church is to think, how do we handle this? We've got to get a grip on this. We've got to figure out what it is, you know, that, that these teachings are and, and these immoral acts are. But brothers and sisters, God is not silent. He has already told us what we need to know. We need not to look somewhere else as if we need more revelation or we need new ways of thinking about these things. Rather, we need to exhaust his word. There is no other word. There is no other hope. As one person said, they said, after all, what more could God say than what he has said in Jesus Christ? Amen. And so he has revealed to us all that we need for life and godliness in him. So often our struggle is to, to not realize uh, the, the finality of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. Now, why God's final word, why is God's final word superior? 
Why, why is it greater than the Old Testament prophets? Why is the revelation given by Jesus as a son superior to the revelation given by the Old Testament prophets? Well, the answer lies really in verses 2 and 3 where he, where he sort of unfolds for us a sevenfold description of the Son of God in just these two verses. Now, there's a lot here, so I've, I'm only going to be able to go through this very quickly. But if you really look at these very closely, it's, it appears that they are organized, these seven statements are organized along the lines of really three great Old Testament offices that were perfected in Christ. And that is that of a prophet, that of a priest, and that of a king. And so I want to look at these seven things uh, under those three headings. So first of all, let's look at Jesus as the true king. Okay, in verse 2 we read, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus, first of all, as the king, is the heir of all things. Because Jesus is God's son, he is the rightful heir of all things owned by God. You know, in Jewish culture, the firstborn son had the right of inheritance. Now, if you come from a large family, you might think, no, wait a minute, that's not fair. You know, but that's just the way it was. That the oldest son, he got, he got everything. And, and as the heir, all things already belong to Jesus or to the son in principle, just as they will actually and finally at the end. And what this means is, is that every single thing that has ever been created was created for Jesus. We see that in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. We, we see that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. We'll, we'll look at Colossians here in just a minute. But that means everything that was made, it was made for Christ. Whether it be the stars or the planets or the plants or whether it's you and me. That we were created for his glory. That all things belong to him. And I think it's interesting to see that in Adam, in Adam, the inheritance that he lost in the fall, Christ has been given as the firstborn from the dead. And so as we look at him, we see that he is the heir of all things, that all things belong to him. But that makes sense, especially as you continue on in verse 2, you see, because through whom also he created the world. In other words, he is the creator of all things as well. Here we see that Jesus is the true king because of his divine role in the act of creation. And it's interesting that with all of our technology and our genius, we can't create anything unless we have some kind of raw material. And yet you see... In God's word that the Son of God only had to speak and the entire universe came into, all things actually, came into existence out of nothing. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. We see it repeated again in John chapter 1. So the world was not only made for Jesus, as we stated just a minute ago, but he was also made by him. But not only did he make all things and he did so for his own glory, but he also upholds all things as well in the universe. Look at verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, the word uphold means to support. It means to maintain. Okay, And in the Greek, this is in the present, which means it's a continuous action. It's something that's ongoing. It doesn't mean that he just sustains it for a little while. But everything in the universe is sustained right now by Jesus. They don't, things don't just happen in the universe by accident. Um, but 
instead, Jesus sustains all things. So, unlike deism that says that God just made everything, it's like a clock, he wound it up and then he threw it down and he's just letting it run on its own, that's not the case with King Jesus. He is intimately involved with his creation. What, what do we read in Matthew chapter 6? But that not, but not even a sparrow falls to the ground dead. But Jesus knows that. But God knows that. Now those of you that live in the country, that live on a farm, man, sparrows are a dime a dozen, right? They're like flying in and out of your barn all the time. You're thinking, who would miss a sparrow? Believe me. It's almost like Canadian geese in the city, I think, you know? It's like, who would miss a Canadian goose? I don't know. But anyway, but Jesus says, not even one of those falls, but, but God knows. So the author doesn't want us to think, you know, of... Uh, Christ sustaining everything like the old Greek mythology, you know, with Atlas, how he holds the world and he's standing there holding the world in his arms. That's not the kind of rule that Jesus does. Instead, the verse tells us that the Son is the governor of all things and Lord of providence. He guides everything on earth to its intended destiny and does so effortlessly. Look at what it says, that he upholds the universe by what? The word of his power, a single word, no effort, no stress, no burden, no hesitation. He is Lord. And brothers and sisters, we need to hear that because we wrestle. We struggle in this world. We, we have a difficult time, uh, a lot in our lives, do we not? And yet Jesus' rule is one of uh, an effortless act. Now, can you imagine a more powerful claim to kingship or lordship than Christ has? He is the one who made all things, that he has created it for his perfect purpose, and he sustains all things. And so, of course, he sits as Lord over all. Now, look, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. Paul um, repeats this concept and he puts it all together in just a, a, a couple of verses in, in a beautiful picture. And 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 I want you as as I read this, don't just think, okay, can I learn something new out of this verse? But I want you to imagine, I want you to hear what this is telling you about your God. Okay, and how great he is. Colossians chapter one, verse fifteen, speaking of Jesus, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, these Jewish Christians who the, the writer is, is writing this letter to may have been tempted to allow other things to rule their lives, just like we might be tempted sometimes to, to seek after and to pursue other things in our life. However, the writer here makes it clear to them and to us that Jesus alone fulfills perfectly the office of a king, that he still is and we are still called to bow before him. That he is the king over all creation. He is the king over the church. He is the king over all men. And I don't mean just Christian men and women and young people and children. 
But all creation, even those who do not acknowledge him, carry out his purposes and his will. We don't often think of him this way, bowing before Jesus to do so. I mean, just like in biblical days, when people saw Jesus, they didn't think of him as a king. As a matter of fact, when he was taken on trial, they mocked him because he called himself a king. And yet he didn't have a palace. He didn't have fancy clothes. He didn't ride on a great stallion or anything like that. And they just totally misunderstood his kingdom. You see, Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world. And I think sometimes, brothers and sisters, we can forget that as well. And we don't really realize the rule that King Jesus has over our existence because we don't see it manifested always in the world in which we live because he is a very patient God. But also, we only see his rule through eyes of faith in the message that he has proclaimed. And God has spoken and he has declared that Jesus Christ is king and those who walk with him and trust in him see that rule not only in their lives, but in the lives around them. But Christ is not only a king, he's also a prophet. Now kids, a prophet was someone who spoke on the behalf of God to his people. Okay, He would speak God's words to God's people. He, God wanted his people to know their commands. He would raise up a prophet. He would speak to them face to face. And it says here that Jesus is Christ's final prophet, that he is the radiance of God's glory, verse 3. Now, now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is the appearance of God. He expresses God to us. No one can see God, right? We learn from the, kid, the children's catechism that, you know, God doesn't have a body like man, right? He's, he's, he's a spirit. And, and the only radiance that reaches us from God is mediated to us through Jesus Christ. If you want to think of it this way, uh, just as the rays of the sun light and warm the earth, so Jesus Christ is the glorious light of God shining into the hearts of men. Jesus, as the sun, is never without and cannot be separated from its brightness, so God is never without and cannot be separated from the glory of Christ. We would never be able to see God for who he is if we didn't have Jesus to, to look at. You know, Jesus one day was standing before, in front of the temple, and he said in John chapter 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and he can transmit that light into your life and my light, so that we, in turn, can radiate that glory of God to others as well. The great tragedy, of course, is, is that most people don't want to see God's light, let alone accept it and live in it. And without the sun, we, we remain in the dark regarding the blinding glory of God. We don't see his glory. His glory is all around us, but without Christ, we can't see it and we're blind to it. And, and, and you can take a, a blind person and you can put the brightest light in front of them and they're still not going to be able to see it. But that doesn't mean that the problem is in the brightness of the light. The problem is in the defect in the eyes. 
And that's the problem that so many have, that they do not see Christ. And we need eyes to see. And God does give believers exactly that eyesight in Jesus Christ. But he's not only the radiance, but he is also the exact imprint of his nature. Now, the Greek term used for imprint refers to uh, an impression made by a die or a stamp on a seal. Okay, the, the design on the die is reproduced in the wax. If you take the die and you press it down on the hot wax and you see a, a picture here, you look here at the stamp or the die and it, guess what? It's the same picture. So Jesus is the reproduction of God. He is the perfect personal imprint of God in time and space. He is the image of the invisible God as we just saw in Colossians 1.15. Um, I think a, a great illustration of this is uh, when Philip was talking to Jesus. Jesus actually was talking to his disciples in John chapter 14 um, in verse 8. And he was telling them about how he was going to go away. And so he's telling them about the Father and the Holy Spirit. And, and Philip said to Jesus, he said, Lord, show us the Father. And that's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, Jesus understood this, but the disciples had not gotten it yet that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. And so Jesus is not only God's final word in speech, but in actions as well. He is, uh, uh, he is um, the imprint of God's nature. So Christ is the perfect uh, king, the perfect prophet, but also, finally, we see here in verse 3, he is the perfect priest. Now, kids, if a prophet spoke God's word to God's people, then a, the priest acts on behalf of the people to God. He, he's the representative of the people before God. And, and it, Jesus is described that way in verse 3. It says, after making purifications for sin. You see, our sin defiles us. And makes us unacceptable before God. We are polluted and not allowed into the presence of the holy, spotless God. We need purification. But we can't obtain this purity on our own. Because every person is in the same situation. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's no one that can deliver us. And then in the Old Testament, on top of that, we read that it, it takes the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And so for... Uh, centuries, uh, sacrifices had been offered, animals had given their life to pay for the, the sins of God's people, and it never works. It's just a picture of what would come. And then finally, in, in Hebrews chapter 9, and go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 9, if you would. I know we're, we're going to examine this more closely when we get there. But for now, just consider, if you would, uh, this, this, the perfect work of Christ because these animal sacrifices didn't accomplish it, but we find that, that Christ as a high priest comes and he does actually accomplish what um, the, the pain of sins through the blood. Hebrews 9 verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, it's important in our verse from chapter 1 and in the verses in chapter 9 to, to see the finality of the work of Christ. In the first chapter, the verb is in the past tense. So it, it really says Jesus has made purification. Okay, he, He's not currently making Purification, the work is complete. And for those whom the sacrifice was made, they are purified. Do you hear that? As, as children of God, do you think of yourself that way? Do you think of yourself as purified? That Christ's work is done. There is nothing more that needs to be done. You know, so often with our daily struggle with sin, we may be so focused on our struggle that we forget what Christ has accomplished and who we are in Him. Especially as you look at the end of verse 3, he said, After making purifications for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. You see, Jesus was the perfect high priest because on the cross, when he when he before he died, he said, "What? It is finished. It is finished. It is complete." The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter seven, verse twenty-seven, the writer of Hebrews declares that Jesus has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. And then chapter 9, verse 12, as we just read, he, Jesus entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In ten, chapter 10, verse 12, we read that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, you and I sit down, Why? Because we're tired, right? But Jesus sits down not to rest, but to rule. The author goes on to say in, in the next few verses that he sits until his enemies are made his footstool. Okay, that, that's an even greater message of, of, of Christ's sovereignty. And, but that he also sits to intercede for us, um, as we'll see more in this book. But consider Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. Verse 34, Paul asks, who is he that condemns? And then Paul answers himself. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, as the most perfect priest, is interceding on behalf of us today. He is our king 
who rules over us in all might and power. He is our prophet who, who shows us God in his fullness. He is the priest who intercedes for us, who's not only paid the sacrifice for our sins and made us pure, but he intercedes for us as we walk in this world in the Christian life. You know, believing in Jesus for Christians in the first century was a very high cost. You know, not so much for us today, but there may be times when we might be tempted to turn to our former way of life. There may be times when we might want to give up, like I wanted to give up in ministry when I was when uh, I was early on in the ministry. Or maybe if you've grown up in a Christian home, you may say, I don't remember a time when I didn't know Jesus, but I can only imagine what it would be like you know, if I didn't believe in Jesus and I could just do whatever I wanted, I could fulfill my own desires, I could pursue financial success, I could put my desires above everybody else. I don't have to worry about loving other people. I could cheat on my taxes, right? You could, you could say whatever you wanted to say and not worry about your words and whether they hurt people. You wouldn't have to feel bad about that. Perhaps maybe you could be more popular or as a student you could cheat on a test or engage in certain activities that are now out of bounds, Would your life not be much simpler and easier and better if you didn't have to follow Jesus? There would no longer be a cost to follow him. And it is true that following Jesus is costly. But the writer to the Hebrews declares that at any price that you pay to follow Christ is worth it. Because nothing exists that can eclipse his glory and he alone reigns as supreme above all. And so when you're tempted to go back, just remember who Jesus Christ is. Just as in the first century, in order to put and to maintain their faith in Jesus Christ, it had to be worth it. We have to ask ourselves, is Jesus worth it? Is he important to us? And as you come to see the unequaled greatness of your beloved Savior, as you behold your God for who he is, then any life that is a separation from Christ becomes an unimaginable thing. And so we are reminded today of who Christ is and that we can trust him. That behold, Jesus is our God. He is our prophet. He is our priest, and he is our king. To him be the glory. Please bow with me, if you would, this morning. We need you, Jesus. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold the glory of who you are. And God, what that means uh, for the lives in which we live. And God, I, I pray for any that might be here today who are struggling in their faith. Or Lord, maybe even worse, those that may seem to be apathetic. Oh God, I pray that you would open their eyes to see you in all your magnificence. And Lord, that we could bow before you as our King that we could give thanks to God that he reveals himself to us through Christ.
and that we have one who represents us before the Father so that we can come into the very throne room of grace to lift up our needs and to worship and to praise you. Oh God, help us to live in who you are as our prophet, priest, and king. We pray in your name. Amen.